Hi CNC fam, Allison here. As you can tell, I am feeling a bit under the weather. I have been sans voice for about a week now. I was hoping it would be back in time to get an episode recorded to get out to you, but alas, it has not come back yet. I didn't want to leave you hanging, so I thought in place of me giving you an episode this week, I would share with you an indie true crime podcast that I truly enjoy called Curious Cousins, where cousins Jess and Tiff share weekly stories of true crime, the paranormal, dark history, and they post new episodes every Friday. So please enjoy this feed drop from Curious Cousins, and please pray for me that I will be back with you next week with a new case for Coffee and Cases. Until next week, Sleuthhounds. Hey cousins, this is Tiff. Today's topic is a little mature for our younger audience. Listener discretion is advised. This is Jess. And I'm Tiff. And we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. I kind of got a doozy for you today. Well, what do we have? This is a true crime episode. And I think this is a Tifferific or <laughs> Tiftastic. I can't remember which one we we did. but It's just me. Yeah. Yeah. I am going to be covering... A spree killer, not a serial killer, a spree killer. Spree killer. I don't think I've ever heard that term used. I don't remember. I vaguely remember hearing it probably from another podcast, Mm -hmm. but I didn't click until I started doing my research for this one. Mm -hmm. A spree killer is someone who does numerous killings or murders in a very short period of time, where serial killer you know, can do it over a long periods of time. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So first, I also want to preference that Jess and I are not professionals. We're not experts in no. the field of true crime or even paranormal or even dark history. No. Uh, we just have a passion for it. Okay. And in my mind, we want the victim's stories to be heard. Yes. And in this case, many of the victims' families are still alive, and I think they deserve to have this continued justice and continued learning because one of these criminals in this story that I'm covering today, they are continually up for parole, and I just Mm -hmm. think it's important that this person does not leave their little jail cell. (laughs) that they've been in for 40 plus years now. Jess and I, we are not crime aficionados. We do not have backgrounds in that area, but we do a lot of research 
and something that I think is unique to you and I, we do mostly book research as Mm -hmm. opposed to internet research. There's just something more that you can gather from an actual book, Mm -hmm. I think. Yes, the World Wide Web opens up so many doors for us. Yeah. And we're not like, we're not saying that it's bad to use the web because we obviously have used it numerous times, but we do use a lot of books. Yes, we have quite the collection of them. And it's growing. (laughs) Yes. So with that, I just don't want anyone to think that we are, we're trying to provide some of these as entertainment or funny type things. No, we don't think these are funny at all. This is just something awful that happened that we think. Yes. It's imp- People should know. It's important that we don't forget. Right. We don't forget the past. We learn from it. And that this is what our purpose is to bring that type of stuff mm-hmm. to I light. Agree. So with that being said, today I am covering Roger Dale Stafford. Mm. He was also mostly known for the Sirloin Stockade murders in the late 1970s. See, I actually, okay, so I know we talked about him maybe like a couple months ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. You were kind of telling me about Oklahoma's serial killer. Yeah. And recently, like maybe a couple weeks ago, I heard the sirloin steakhouse episode from erie oklahoma yes and i had i had never heard that story before Mm -hmm. that was my first time hearing it and i honestly didn't connect the two until you just said it so yes (laughs) erie oklahoma their episode over the sirloin stockade murder Mm -hmm. that was one of the episodes that i listened to Mm -hmm. i also listened to uh, case 202 the sirloin stockade murders part one and two by the sirens a true crime podcast both of those podcasts um, erioki obviously and the sirens are both specific oklahoma Mm -hmm podcast and we are huge fans of them both mm-hmm. i also read the um section from a book called oklahoma's most notorious cases by kent freights the sirloin stockade murders that's where 90 percent of my information probably came from and then i used murderpedia over roger dale stafford Oh, and well. if you've never looked at murderpedia and true crime is something that you have a passion for or interested in that website will give you more than you ever bargained for. Oh man. Well, I don't want to say I'm excited, but I'm I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about okay. everything. Yeah. I want to start out because I want us to recognize that this is going to be about the victims and I wanted to point out his victims. His first victim was Jimmy Earl Berry, who was age 21, Air Force Tech Sergeant Melvin Lorenz, 38. His wife, Staff Sergeant Linda, 31. Their son, Richard, who was 12. Mm-hmm. Isaac Freeman, Louis Zacharias, Terry Horst, David Salesman, Anthony Two, and David Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And so we'll go over all of them. There are about three murders or events that okay. happen where these victims became victims, I guess. So let's start in the beginning. Roger Dale Stafford. He was born November 4th, 1951. I think that makes him a Scorpio. And he died by execution on July 1st, 1995. He was 43 years old and he died by lethal injection. Hmm. 
He was what is considered a spree killer, not a serial killer, meaning that he committed his murders in a short period of time rather than over a long period. His early life started out in Alabama where he was born. He was one of 10 children. Oh, wow. His hometown is Sheffield, Alabama. In 1956, his family moved to Chicago. His father was usually unemployed and his mother usually kept a job as a housekeeper. Roger dropped out of school in about ninth grade. He ended up going to Illinois State School for Delinquents at Jolette. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Okay. He was kind of into petty crime at the time and just not making good choices. So in 1968, he decided to join the U.S. Marines, but was medically discharged after 28 days. I couldn't find anywhere why he was medically discharged or what kind of... I mean, it could have been anything, like a heart murmur. Yeah, health issue that he might have had. After this, Roger was mostly a drifter, thief, a con man, and most assuredly, probably a murderer. Mm. And by probably... We don't know anything really before 1974 if he committed any murders before then. It's suspected that he possibly could have. It wouldn't surprise me if they were ever to probably find that he did. He may go ahead and he would turn into what they would call a serial killer. I see. Here's a kooky fact. Roger would sometimes tell people he was from Stadfordshire, England, and he spoke with a fake British accent. Why? I I don't know. And I laugh because Jess's little brother and my (laughs) husband, (laughs) they like to speak with fake British accents. We, um, all four of us, had traveled to Las Vegas once, (laughs) and they had the taxi cab driver convinced that they were British, and Jessica and I were both like, um, they're they're not British. Well, the funny thing about that is neither one of them sounded like no. legit no. British. They sounded accent. terrible. It was an Oklahoma boy trying to sound <laughs> British. I mean, that's what it was. Exactly. <laughs> Roger never stayed anywhere for very long. He never held a job for more than a few months. So he really did kind of live that transient lifestyle that is very familiar to... So he was kind of like his dad in the fact he couldn't hold a job. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, In 1972, he married a woman named Verna. They had three children. I'm not going to name the children simply because they are still alive Mm -hmm. and... I would rather let them keep their privacy. Right. Wait, okay. So where is he at this point? Like, is he still in Chicago? I believe so. Okay. I couldn't remember if you... Um, I'm trying to be a better listener. (laughs) At some point, he makes his way back to Alabama. Okay. In the next two years, because in 72, he marries Verna, and they start to have children. And, you know, this is something that is not often brought up, but in my opinion... And believe me, most of this podcast is my and Jess's opinion. His children were just as big as victims as the actual victims because in this case, they, spoiler alert, lose both parents. Right. And not to mention that they were just raised in an atrocious 
situation. And I'll get into that, but it's just no way that children should be raised in. So I hope that they're thriving and that they're able to put behind what their parents did. Anyways, we'll move on. In 1974, on January 12th in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, 20-year-old Jimmy Earl Berry, he was a student at the University of Northern Alabama. He is shot to death four times in a McDonald's robbery. Uh, The killer got away with $1,400, which would be about $8,400 today. Roger and Harold. Harold is Roger's brother and is his accomplice in most all of his criminal activities. Okay. They had been living about a mile from the McDonald's at the time. Roger left town two to three weeks after the murder, but was arrested in Tennessee, where a 22 Ruger pistol was taken off of him. The pistol matched the type used in the Barry murder, and the murder remained unsolved for four years. Oh, man. This is where most, I think, detectives and experts in the area believe that his murdering spree started here in 1974 so he kind of got the taste for it yes yes ran with it i and one of my sources it said that he was known to be in states Mm -hmm. that actually did have missing persons or uh, unsolved murders in them Mm -hmm. one of those kind Mm -hmm. of israel keys type things you know right so he was, there's just all we know are the ones right. that we have. And probably no way to tell now. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. In 1978, June 22nd, the bodies of Air Force Tech Sergeant Melvin Lawrence, 38, and his wife, Staff Sergeant Linda Lawrence, 31, are found dead near Purcell. Their pickup and son are missing. On June 24th, authorities find Richard Lawrence, 12, dead about a mile from where his parents were found. At this point... when did they do the crime? I'll get into that. Oh. I go into a big... Oh, so I just kind of jumped Yeah, this is kind of just the timeline right now. Okay, I'm sorry. At this point, I will refer to the criminal's... As the Stratford Trio, it's not Stratford, that's a town in Oklahoma, Stafford Trio, (laughs) or I'll use their actual names. The trio consisted of Roger Dale Stafford, his brother Harold, and his wife Verna, Roger's wife Verna, not Harold's wife, we'll get into her later. Okay. On July 16th, the Stafford Trio arrives at the Sirloin Stockade in South Oklahoma City. They wait for all customers to leave, then approach the back door, where they knock and, pointing guns at the manager, enter. Roger and the manager empty the safe of $1,290, approximately $5,800 today. Mm-hmm. Verna and Harold hold the remaining five employees at gunpoint. Then, all six employees of the Sirloin Stockade restaurant at Southwest 74th and Penn are herded into a walk-in freezer and shot about 10.45 p.m. A teen, Carlos Joy, waiting to pick up his girlfriend, Terry Horst, at the restaurant, discovers the scene when he sees the trio's card leaves and he enters the restaurant looking for everyone. Oh, that's awful. Yes. I can't even imagine. The insane thing is I am very familiar with this part of Oklahoma City, 
that's where we would always go and do shopping around there and we would eat because they have like a lot of really cool restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so when I Google earthed the exact location, Mm -hmm. now I believe it is a Del Taco, but it's been a Joe's Crab Shack before. I don't remember it ever being a sirloin stock. I imagine it probably closed after this. Okay, so was sirloin stockade was that kind of like a chain or was it yes. just a because i'd never heard of okay them before. i don't think they had them up here the first one i ever remember seeing or ever have been to has been the one that was in Stillwater. I don't even know if that one's still there. Okay. But that's the first one I had ever heard of. And it almost sounds like that it may have just been kind of a central Oklahoma. Kind of thing. Kind of thing. It's very similar to Golden Corral or. Oh, kind of like a, a buffet style. Yeah, like what was that one called? Like the Sirloin Sizzler. Oh, Western Sizzler? Western Sizzler. Okay. There we go. Yeah, it's very, it's just like the same of that. Uh, I see. Okay. okay. So. This happened, and 21 detectives are assigned to this case across the law enforcement agencies. The lead detective is Les McCaleb. Larry Kuntz is a robbery homicide detective assigned to the case. Bill Cook and Phil Stinnett are assigned as an Oklahoma City Police Department and OSBI task force. It is rumored that the reason the trio was in need of this money was because Roger and Verna couldn't afford the house and their three kids, so they needed extra money. Harold needed the money to pay for an abortion for his girlfriend. Mind you, his wife is in Tulsa with (gasps) his and his brother's children. What? It is said she was just viewed as the babysitter, which I think is disgusting. His girlfriend or the mom? His wife. His, Harold's wife. They literally, the trio, called her Fat Mary. The wife? Yes. And she apparently was just there to watch the kids so they could go on their little exploits. Oh, how awful. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So on July 23rd, Karma, I suppose, maybe, comes knocking, and Harold Stafford dies in a motorcycle accident in Tulsa. Oh, wow. In one source, it says that his death is suspicious, which we'll get into that where you may, by the end of this, I'll allow you to make your own conclusion. (laughs) But by the end of all my research, his death became very suspicious to me as well. Okay, interesting. Nothing ever comes of that suspicion. Mm -hmm. Simply chalk it up to he got into a motorcycle accident. Mm. Uh, Verna Stafford later testifies that he was involved in both the Lawrence and the Steakhouse murders. So he was a part of this whole gang, I guess you could call it. Yeah. On July 24th, police begin checking for links between the two cases that these possibly could be linked to one another. During this time, Roger travels between Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, New York, Florida, and England. It is believed that Roger conned a woman in Florida to take him to New York and then pay for a ticket to England. Where he got to use his fake British accent. I'm sure it went over well there. Roger and Verna had separated at this time, with Verna going to Chicago with the three children. And we'll get into why I think they separate. So why? How, what was the time frame on that? The murders happened July 16th, and by July 24th, he's already traveling all over the place. Wow, they're separated. Mm-hmm. So were they separated when the murders happened? No. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. Hmm. All right, so then in September of 1978... 
10-year-old Greg Martin and his friends find a sack containing three guns hidden in a wooden lot in northwest Oklahoma City. It took a week before the guns were considered in the Sirloin Stockade murders. Two of the guns were identified as being used in both the Sirloin Stockade and the Lorenz murders. So that's about the time when they discovered that these two homicides are related. So a couple of kids found these guns. Yes. I'm assuming they told their parents or called the police or something to that effect. Uh, Greg went to his dad. His dad instantly called the police. Well, that's good at least. So we're going to skip ahead to 1979. January 2nd, the OSBI releases three composite sketches. Arthur Linville with OSBI is the agent who supervised the Lorenz case. He was working with the detectives involved in the Sirloin Stockade murders. After they released this composite, more than 200 tips started flooding in, including the best one. Oh. We may joke, we know that this is not a funny topic, but criminals are stupid. Oh, absolutely. And Roger is no exception to this. Mm. January 3rd, a very important podcaster's birthday, I might say, (laughs) but not 1979. (laughs) January 3rd, a drunken Roger Dale Stafford makes an anonymous call claiming to be a truck driver into OSBI. Oh my gosh. Saying that he met two of the people in the composites and he gives them the names Verna and Harold Stafford. Are you kidding me? Here's kind of a spooky fact. Roger is actually in Oklahoma City at the time of the call. Linville, the agent with OSBI, Uh actually stopped to talk to the motel manager, the motel he was at, talked to that manager the same day he was there. Oh my gosh. They were literally in the same place at the same time. That is crazy to even think about. Mm -hmm. So March 6th, Harold's wife Mary is tracked down in Chicago. She corroborated that she and Harold were living with Verna and Roger at the time of the murders in Tulsa. Verna and Mary were currently working together. It is suspected that Mary had absolutely no idea about the trio's killing or crime sprees. Verna is arrested in Chicago. She was living there with her and Roger's three children, and the children were immediately placed into foster care. Here's the kooky fact. Remember Harold? Mm-hmm. He died in the motorcycle, motorcycle right? A woman who went to view Harold's body actually identified it at the morgue. She proclaimed herself as his wife. Her name was Faye. She was not his wife. When they asked for her identification to confirm that she was his wife, she suddenly didn't have any. She had to leave. to come. She would come back with it. This is the girlfriend, right? Oh. I don't think so. Oh. She left, but she returned, claiming to now be a friend. Oh. oh. She was tracked down in our mental health hospital in Arkansas. When she was found in question, she mentioned Roger and Verna and Harold and how they had committed the steakhouse murders. Somehow she knew them. I have no idea how she ended up knowing them. I could never find how she knew them. Faye identified Roger as Jimmy Wayne, which I believe is one of his aliases that he had used. I can find nothing more about this woman, how she knew them, what her relationship was like. That's weird. It was very so weird. So it's kooky. It's crazy. 
All right. So back to March 13th. Roger Dale Stafford is arrested in a YMCA lobby in Chicago. He returned to Oklahoma City the next day. When Roger is found in Chicago, it is speculated that he may have been there to murder Verna. Silencing her would be beneficial to him because she was the last living witness to his murders. Wow. The spooky in me tells me Roger probably had something to do now with his his brother's death. (gasps) This is just my opinion. That's just my opinion. It seems too convenient that Harold winds up crashing his motorcycle right after this murder spree. And it's especially haunting because Verna claims Harold didn't want anyone to get hurt. He didn't want anyone to be murdered. And so she he says just that kind repeat. of, he just thought like, oh, we're going to rob this place. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. And like, I will get very deep into all of the crimes right. when we get to the trial. So do you think maybe Roger and Harold maybe had an argument? Possibly. And possibly maybe that kind of was a reason for the motorcycle possibly i want did they ever say like why they thought it was suspicious no like were the brake lines cut or something literally the line just said his murder has been considered suspicious i really want to know what that i know right Uh, roger is interviewed twice once by mccaleb in linville and then again by cook in linville and he never admits to any crime nevertheless he makes comments that help to establish his guilt uh, Roger does admit to being the truck driver who called OSBI twice and identified Verna and Harold. It is speculated that Roger was trying to pin the murders on Verna and incidentally got himself caught. Oh, jeez. Roger asked Linville if Verna was for or against him, to which Linville replies that Verna is being fully cooperative. Roger would argue that Verna couldn't testify against him because it was his wife. But at this time, Oklahoma had no law preventing Verna from doing just that. Roger gets upset and shaken, stating he can't think and that all he can see is the gas chamber. Another kooky fact, Oklahoma doesn't have a gas chamber, never has had a gas chamber. I looked it up. (laughs) We currently are on lethal injection and have been, I think, in since the beginning of the 70s. Oklahoma has never, to my knowledge, had a gas chamber. The Oklahoma Corrections website states that Oklahoma has executed a total of 197 men and three women between 1915 and 2022 at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. 82 were executed by electrocution, one by hanging, which happened to be a federal prisoner, and 117 by lethal injection. The last execution by electrocution took place in 1966 so since then yeah it's been lethal injection interesting i want to read from oklahoma's most notorious cases i'm going to read from page 225 prior to october 1st 1978 oklahoma statutes had contained a prohibition preventing one spouse from testifying against the other the legislator had modified this privilege in 1978 And under the prosecution's theory of the new law, Verna would be able to testify to anything she had actually seen or any conversations she had with Roger Dale in the presence of a third party. So that law came out that same year. A year before. Oh, the year before. He was caught in 79. 
It came out in 78. Oh, man. How crazy is that? So since Harold and Verna were generally present when the crimes were planned and carried out, her testimony would indeed be admissible. Verna was in a position to cook Roger Dale's goose. This is, again, from the booker. However, the new law to Oklahoma and its interpretation was still in doubt. The uncertainty over the admissibility of Verna's testimony and the need to corroborate it drove the detectives to search for more evidence. And more evidence did they find. Oh, my goodness. Roger will later go on to say that he wasn't worried about being guilty because he was more worried that Verna was out to get him because he had left her because he had caught her fooling around. So she was trying to pin these murders on him. I feel like, like, what an excuse is that? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, Yeah. Okay. During his interrogation, Roger admits that in his dreams, he saw blood and heard screams. He wondered if it meant anything. He even asked Linville if he thought it did. His dreams. Yes. So he's saying these, he's having these bloody gory dreams and but he in asks reality, the OSBI like, agent that if it means anything. Uh, if it means yeah, anything. Yeah. I'm just disgusted. Yeah, it means you're guilty of murder. That's what it means. Here's a kooky fact. Roger Stafford was a talker. He claimed he could talk his way out of anything. I was going to say, it sounds like he likes the sound of his own oh. voice. He sounds like a narcissist. A hundred percent. Like I'm positive, not positive, but if you were to look up narcissist, his picture should be right there. <laughs> along with some other people. You're right. Because of being able to testify against a spouse was new and still up for debate and interpretation, detectives had to find more evidence to pin these murders on on Roger. In their digging, detectives discovered that Roger, Verna, Harold, and Mary had all lived off and on at the Holiday Inn in Tulsa. Verna was employed there as a housekeeper. They, the four of them, typically had access to rooms, even if they claimed residence in other places. This led Detective McCaleb to locate other workers at the Holiday Inn. One in particular was located in Enid. It was Linda Lewis. She, with the help of two more women, provided additional information that helped to convict Roger. In total, it takes six months to track down Verna and Roger Stafford. It was great old-fashioned detective work that brought these two down. They went straight for their informants, detectives did, when it first happened kind of shook him up. Mm-hmm. They didn't get any information. So then they went and offered a $50,000 reward, which would be about 227000 today. Mm. They got nothing until Roger's own drunk dial. Oh, when he, the, the uh, <laughs> truck driver dial? Yes, his drunk dial. He, he was drunk. He was a drunk truck dial. Oh, that's... Drunk truck driver. Reassuring. <laughs> on March 16th, Roger is arraigned on one count of murder of Terry Horst. On March 23rd, Roger is transferred to Eastern State Hospital in Venita for a full mental and physical exam. After 24 days, he returned to Oklahoma City, having been found sane and able to stand trial. Good. Now, here's some karma again. Mm. June 15th, Roger's lawyer asked to be withdrawn as the attorney. It is granted on June 20th. His attorney stated that the funds to pay him had not come in, as well as Roger was indignant. 14 days later, Roger's second attorney withdraws. Again, because funds were not being raised by the Stafford family to pay the lawyer. So at this point, Roger is appointed a public defender. On July 24th, Jay, I don't know if it's pronounced Maloney or Malone, it's M-A-L-O-N-E, 
Malone. Uh, it sounds like Malone to okay. me. Jay Malone Brewer and John T. Hall take up Roger's defense. It's kooky fact, though. It's believed in one source that Brewer only took on the case so he could get the book and movie rights to it. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I wonder if that's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, on August 2nd, Roger Dale Stafford is ordered to stand trial for the Steakhouse murders. At this time, the remaining five murder charges from the Steakhouse murders were filed against Roger. Cleveland and McLean County withheld charging Roger for their Lorenz murders until the outcome of the Oklahoma County trial. Okay. And I'm going to read again from Oklahoma's Most Notorious Cases, page 227. The admissibility of Verna's testimony at trial continued to remain in doubt. Brewer adamantly argued against its admissibility. Remember, Brewer is Roger's attorney. Right. In the end, the question revolved around whether the change in the Oklahoma law was procedural or substantive, a fine point of law, but crucial to the outcome of the case. If the charge was substantive, then the privilege to bar Verna's testimony, which existed at the time the killings were committed, still remained, and Verna could not testify. If the change was procedural, the path was open to the interpretation of the new law. Ultimately, Judge Gebb allowed Verna's testimony, but the fight over this pivotal issue was far from over. Along with other motions, the defense would raise this issue again with District Judge Charles Owens, who was assigned to hear all pretrial motions and try the case. Well, that's so, interesting. We'll figure out that that's going to be a fight throughout uh-huh. a lot of the case. How long did the trial last? Um, I don't remember now. We'll get into it. We're getting ready to get into oh, okay. it. September 24th, District Judge Charles Owen ruled that Verna's testimony was admissible in court. A kooky fact. This was also the first trial that was going to be televised in Oklahoma. Oh, interesting. There was only one camera present. You said September 24th? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. It's another podcast or sports thing. <laughs> Um, the media was allowed to actually watch the trial, but they were in a closed cir- or on a closed circuit in another room in the courthouse. This helped to prevent the circus-like event trials like this could cause. And then the trial was also aired on network TV. Oh, wow. October 8th, the trial begins. There are seven women and five men on the jury. Because of how many potential jurors they went through, the jury was sequestered the entire trial. Prosecutors set the terrible scene at the Sirloin Stockade. It seems three victims were only shot once straight in the head. The other three were riddled with gunshot wounds. Pictures of the victims' bodies were shown in court. Judge Owens has said that one of his most vivid memories from that trial was the impact it had on hardened police officers. One even had to leave the courtroom to vomit. This was all setting the stage for Verna's testimony. Verna described their living conditions at the Holiday Inn and how they were short on cash, so Rogers suggested robbery. That um, image of the, well, not image, but what you talked about with police officers, and that just gave me chills. Yeah. That's just so heartbreaking. Verna said that Roger assured her and Harold that no one would get hurt, even though they would be armed. It is doubtful that Verna would have believed him since this came on the hills of the Mm -hmm. Lorenz murder. Yeah. Verna described how Roger knew what restaurant to hit. 
They drove there in a borrowed car and waited until all customers had left. Verna, Roger, and Harold were all armed with guns. Borrowed or like quote quote borrowed. They borrowed it from a friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> the friend. Comes I just up thought they'd like, ask. Yeah, I let them borrow my car. Not a good idea, bro. No, not at all. They knocked on the back door and Zacharias answered. They forced him to the cash register. Verna claims that Zacharias remarked that he couldn't understand why they would take other people's money when they could just work for themselves. And I'm going to go on like a little rant here. Okay. Several of my sources almost victim shamed this man. Really? For making that comment. And in my mind, because it does say that that comment infuriates Roger. I mean, I can see how it would. Verna says that. But at the same time, in a million years, did that man ever really think that he was going to get hurt? Right. Or that his words were going to cost the lives of five other people. And I just get disgusted when people victim shame him. Like you never, he never would have thought that. It's not his fault. In his defense, I mean, it was probably late. Yeah, it was. was. It was 1045. He was tired. He was probably ready to go home. He could have been hungry. Exactly. I mean, you know, I've thought the same thing about things before. In the heat of the moment. It's just, it's frustrating. could come flying out of And it's just kind of like. I am not going to victim shame here. He had every right to say what he said because that was hard money that they did work for. Right. And in a million years, he probably never thought that that was going to do him in or that comment was going to send this man over the edge. Right. You know? I mean, who would have known? Exactly. So detectives questioned this statement many times. Zacharias had cooperated the entire time, it appeared, but Verna mentions this happening in each of her statements that she gave. Zacharias then called all the other employees to the register and told them they were being robbed and to cooperate. Zacharias then had to take Roger to the manager's office to get the $1,290. Harold and Verna placed the others in the walk-in freezer. The employees were told to sit down and that no one was going to get hurt. Roger returns with Zacharias, who Verna says was still talking about why people would rob other people's money. Verna said this made Roger a little furious. A little? (laughs) Verna said at the time, Harold reminded everyone that no one was supposed to get hurt. But Roger responded with, they are going to get what they deserve. Roger then told Harold, and I pardon my language, don't be a chicken shit and a coward, then shot Isaac Freeman. I think he just want. I I think he had it planned all along. I 100% agree with that. I believe that he knew exactly what he was going to do when he went there. Right. And I will tell you that there's a part of me that believes Harold and Verna knew it too. Really? You think Mm -hmm. so? I think so. Verna said that this one shot was the starting pistol. Harold and Roger unleashed shot after shot into the freezer. Verna claims to have tried to turn away and not watch it, but that Roger then told her it was time for her to help, placing the gun in her hand and helping her pull the trigger. Well, yeah, he didn't want to be the only one implicated. Absolutely. It makes me think... It does make me question Harold then because if him and Harold are both shooting up the rest mm-hmm. of the victims, why did Harold participate mm-hmm. like that? Like if he was didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah. Verna then ran out of the sirloin stockade and picked up three empty boxes with the restaurant's name on them and placed them into the car. Roger and Henry, I put Henry in my notes, <laughs> Roger and Harold then got into the car. Roger sped out of the parking lot and onto the highway, almost hitting another car. 
This was corroborated by Pamela Ann Lynch, as she was the other car, and she could positively ID Roger. She said they made eye contact. Oh, wow. What's disgusting is that Roger saw Pamela waiting outside the courtroom prior to her testimony. Uh He caught her eye and made the slicing of his (gasps) neck motion, trying to unhinge her. It didn't work. She she testified. She was a boss. Oh, you go, girl. The trio stopped to get drinks at a gas station after this. After they just murdered how many people? Six. And (sighs) all but two were teenagers. Oh, my gosh. Roger then suggested they get rid of the guns. And so Roger drove around northeast Oklahoma City until he found a wooded vacant lot. He placed the guns in the gas station's bag and hid them. Not very well if a couple of kids no, found them. I, like, I literally think it was like under some twigs or something. They then returned to Tulsa because that's where they lived. The next day, the trio met in a vacant room at the Holiday Inn to divide up the money. Another maid, Rose Anna Marie Collins, caught them with the money and asked where they had gotten it. Verna said she had borrowed it. At this point, Roger discovered the sirloin stockade boxes Verna had taken. He ordered her to get rid of them, and it is reported that she didn't do it fast enough, so then he told Rose to burn them. Why did she take them in the first place? My opinion is that she wanted to get caught because this is just my speculation again. If there weren't sirloin stockades in Tulsa, Mm -hmm. and now they have these boxes Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it was known that they had drove to Oklahoma City the night before but that almost implicates them having those boxes as if she was trying to possibly get caught which I mean I kind of feel like she did at one point maybe she did want to get caught because she knew that what was happening was wrong but but she also participated 100%. in the and never well, never she, I mean she participated the in the the couple's mm-hmm. murder as oh, well though, right? Even worse there. I I think it's So hers she just is, all of a sudden felt guilty? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> right. Right. Um despite all this, Detective Cook and Linville actually believed that Verna, not Harold, was the second shooter. There's no way they could ever prove this because it was Roger's word against Verna's word because Harold was already dead. Right, he was gone. This was due to statements she gave them prior to the trial. But of course, this version that I'm reporting on uh-huh. is what she gave under oath and is what is officially recorded. In. Right. Cross-examination of Verna was extensive. Brewer was trying to find any inconsistencies in her story. He even brought up Danny Kerr which was an acquaintance of the Staffords, as the third person with Verna and Harold. However, police had already eliminated Kerr, citing that he was actually in Tulsa at the time of the crimes in Oklahoma City. Okay. He was somebody, I he was on police radar. Yeah. And so they had already kind of looked into him. Okay, I see. Verna was very persuasive, yet unsympathetic. And it's something that you will see carry over into parole trials. And interviews that she'll give now. Interesting. Linda Louise Lewis was also a witness for the state. She overheard a fight between Roger and Verna at the Holiday Inn the day after the murder. Roger hit Verna and she threatened to call the police. Roger said she would be in just as much trouble, but Verna stated she didn't kill them. Roger stated that she was there, though. He had a point. Right. She would have been just 
Right. Then there's Teresia Darlene Bennett. She was also a housekeeper at the Holiday Inn where she witnessed Roger and Harold drive away in that borrowed car. Uh huh. She also said the sirloin stockade boxes and a pair of blood splattered jeans were in the hotel dumpster. Oh. She said she even jokingly asked Roger if he was the one who killed the people in Oklahoma <gasps> City. His response, are you ready? Yes, I did. <gasps> she claimed his response was dead serious. Teresia and Rose spoke to each other about this. Rose again goes back and asks Roger if he did the murdering. And again, he says yes. Oh my gosh. He told her it was like shooting balloons. <gasps> shooting a fence post. Oh. She then threatened to turn him in, and Roger told her that if she turned him in, she wouldn't live long enough to testify, and Rose believed him, which I probably would have too. I mean, wouldn't you have? I mean, yeah, I would, but I still feel like I don't know what I would have done in that situation, because I would like to think that I would go to the authorities and say, look, this guy told me this. Mm -hmm. I've asked him multiple times. He was dead serious. I think you need to look into him. I mean, I feel like... I would hope that I would do that. But I, I, I mean, hope in the I heat the right of the thing. moment. Right. And I mean, you he's could, standing right in front of you, too. Well, and he's already killed nine, nine people. Technically ten. If and you if what's you count one more? Others. You know exactly. what I mean? So, exactly. like, I, oh. When the state rested, it was the defense's turn. Roger's ego couldn't keep him from taking the stand, a la Ted Bundy. Oh, gosh. He wanted to, it seemed. He had already claimed he could talk his way out of anything. So let's see how this worked out for him. Oh, He was egotistical, a total narcissist, even while on stand. He demoed his fake British accent while he was up there. No, he he didn't. Yes, he he did did not. Yes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He described many exploits with gullible women who he could get money out of. I mean, I just... Did you hear my eyes roll? I just feel like he's just proving that how guilty he actually Uh, is. He literally said, why would I stand when I'm blessed with this gift of gab, as some would say, vomit, vomitous. Ugh. Yeah, I just threw up in my mouth. Right. I'm not going to lie. Roger denied any and all involvement in the crimes. In an outburst, he declared, I'll take a lie detector right now, right here, right in front of the camera, in front of the jury, in front of your honor. Oh, jeez. Roger claimed that on July 16th, he was drinking with Danny Kerr and three black gentlemen. Roger thought it strange that the black gentlemen couldn't be found to corroborate his story. Roger thought it was strange. Mm-hmm. Oh, because he made yeah, them because up. he didn't exist. Exactly, they didn't exist. Roger claims that at six p.m. Verna left and didn't return until two p.m. He was drunk on the hood of his car from ten to eleven, the precise time the murders were taking place. I think it's interesting that he knew the exact time that he was drunk on the hood of his car. Right. For how, for, you know, that specific amount of time. Roger admitted that he was the truck driver who called OSBI to tip them off about Verna and Harold. He also had to express his opinions on the composite drawings. He said one picture was a dead ringer for his brother Harold. The other was absolutely my wife. And the third he wasn't so forthcoming on he claimed well this fellow has glasses and didn't have a mustache and had brown hair rogers says that he never wore glasses and always had a mustache because it's not easy to shave it off not at all he went on and on about how verna was lying he said verna was out to get him because she had got caught playing around three times 
quote, playing around. Mm. I will not go into how I think Roger at this point shows how much of a complete racist he was. He mentioned people of color several times, like trying to pin it on that, oh, she was fooling around with people of color. Oh, I was with these people of color. Like, what What are you doing? Right. What are you doing? Yeah. That's um, just disgusting. He thought they were missing witnesses or someone who'd messed with him. And it is mentioned that Isaac Freeman, who happened to be the first person that they believe was shot, yeah. was a man of color. Do so, they think it, it was race-related why he was shot? Oh, first. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Roger denied ever owning any guns. The prosecution had two witnesses that claimed Roger not only had guns, but he bragged about them and showed them to them. Oh my gosh, he's like the biggest bigot. Oh, everyone, everyone (sighs) in that whole courtroom was lying except for him, Jess. (gasps) Of course they were. He was the only honest man. I wonder how that happened. The only other witness the defense had was Roger's supervisor at work who confirmed that Roger had shown up at work at 3.15 in the afternoon on July 17th. Did he work the night shift? Yeah. So he had plenty of time to commit the murders, come back to Tulsa, sleep, and be at work at 3.15. Well, yeah. I mean, Tulsa is not that far from Oklahoma City. I mean, now, like on the turnpike, it's an hour and a half. So during the rebuttal, the prosecution called Ronald Watkins, who was a jailhouse informant and a felon who served time with Roger. He said Roger claimed to have been there, but that his wife and brother had done all the murdering. He also said Roger told him about filing off the gun serial numbers and getting rid of them. Oh, wow. During the defense's rebuttal, they called another jailhouse informant, Kenneth Thomas. This was a huge mistake, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Instead of proving that Ronald Watkins was lying, it almost seemed to put the final nail in the coffin. Thomas claimed Roger called the worker at the Sirloin Stockade suckers or else they wouldn't have been working there and said his only mistake was not leaving Verna in the freezer. <gasps> and of course... Roger had to take the stand again to say both Ronald Watkins and Kenneth Thomas were lying. I I don't even have the words. Like, I... So, your earlier question was how long the trial lasted. It began October 8th. On October 17th, the Oklahoma City County Journey convicts Roger Stafford guilty in 27 minutes, no less. (laughs) Of all six counts of murder. The jury moved to sentencing where Roger's attorney asked that he not be executed. It only took 53 minutes of deliberation for the jury to recommend death on all six counts. And I am one of those people, the death penalty is a very gray area for me. Yeah. I want to believe in reform. I really do. Mm -hmm. And rehabilitation. I, that's the purpose. Right. But I don't think everyone deserves it. I would agree. I mean, this is probably one of them that doesn't. This is, I mean, this is such a. He's, it's sickening. It's, it's sickening. It, absolutely. I mean, everything about this guy is just disgusting. Right. So, I, I mean, I've said that so many times, right. but like, it's just, I'm just, ugh. Yeah. It makes me sick. Oh, it gets even better. While leaving the courtroom, Roger spoke to everyone saying, unless someone comes forward and tells the truth, I'll die an innocent man. At this point, Judge Owens tells the jury, I do sincerely believe justice was done. Roger was 27 years old. He was that young? Yes. Now, during this time, Verna files for divorce. So... 
let's skip ahead to February 28th of 1980. A jury of seven men and five women are selected. Mm -hmm. Again, the jury is sequestered. Now that the Oklahoma City trial was over, it was time to answer for the killings of the Lorenz family. McLean County announced that they would go ahead with filing murder charges against Roger Dale Stafford. Verna would need to be the star witness again. Her testimony was devastating to Roger, but also to herself, which fair. Right. 100%. Again, the defense tried to claim she couldn't testify against her spouse or that she had been put under hypnosis. This, of course, proved to be untrue, and her attempt at hypnosis failed. Wait. Okay, say the hypnosis thing again. What does that have to... Sometimes they'll put people under hypnosis because it's supposed to jog memories that may be blocked. Well, when I guess they did try to put her under hypnosis... And it didn't work. And it didn't work. Okay. So it doesn't matter. Right. So it didn't work. So her testimony is valid. Okay. I see. Roger then requested the use of sodium... Pentothal. I think that's how you say it. Pentothal. What the heck is that? This is known as the truth serum. It's supposed to also be able to bring those suppressed memories what to What is light. this, Harry Potter? Right, right. He didn't have Professor Snape, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, it is incidentally also one of the drugs used for lethal injections. So in my mind, I was like, well, what if it had failed and you had died? Like, is this your way of getting out, of having to answer for... The, for what you did? For the Lorenz family right. murders? I'm betting that Roger was hoping that, possibly. But even if it didn't work, whatever he said under the use of that drug uh-huh. would have been inadmissible because he's under a drug. Right. So, hello, pot. This is kettle. Right. <laughs> Remember what you said about Verna being hypnotized? Roger claims to have an alibi for the Lorenz murders. Here is some information about the Lorenz family. Both Melvin and Linda were serving our country in the U.S. Air Force. They were stationed in San Antonio, Texas, and at the time of their murders, were heading home to North Dakota to attend Melvin's mother's funeral. That's... It just killed that... Yeah, that... That's their family. Like, they're having to put, you know, a matriarch, say goodbye to her. Right. And in the middle of it, in when they should just be focusing on one person, like, that happens to them. And I I know that it's not like the Stafford trio knew, but at the same time, like... Well, I mean... Uh, you just have to feel so, I mean, so bad for the family exactly. because they just lost this, the mom, yeah. the grandma, probably mm-hmm. the sister, what, I mean, whatever else she was to other people. And then, like you said, this, yeah, this awful thing happens where husband, wife and child are, are murdered. Right. It's not like they just die in a car wreck. They were yeah. murdered. They were murdered brutally, brutally. Right. You know, right after this matriarch like you said Mm -hmm. passes away i mean i can't even imagine what that family went through me neither or is still going through today verna again testified she stated that at first they stole a gun in purcell and the plan was to rob a motel in paul's valley they went to paul's valley the motel for whatever reason they decided against it i'm assuming it was like too busy or there wasn't a good place for i don't know i don't know how robbers think yeah 
Verna comes up with this idea that they could flag down a car, her faking that she is some distressed motorist, and then they could essentially jump that person and rob them. It was her idea. She admits that it was her idea. The Stafford trio park their car on the side of I-35 south of Purcell. Roger and Harold are hiding behind the car. It took about an hour before the Lorenz family stopped their truck to help Verna. Melvin looked under the hood and told Verna he couldn't find anything wrong. Roger and Harold then appeared and demanded all of Melvin's money. Melvin said he would give them some, but couldn't give them all of it. This infuriated Roger, again, like in the, you know, in the steakhouse murders. So he shot Melvin twice in the neck and chest. Linda Lorenz then rushed to her husband's aid and attacked Verna. Verna pushed Linda away and Roger shot her three times. Two shots penetrated her lungs and won her aorta. The trio dragged the bodies away from the highway. Roger then took Lorenz's truck and started driving north on I-35. Verna and Harold were in the car behind him. Roger heard sounds coming from the back of the truck. And if you, I almost want to tell people, skip ahead 30 seconds to miss this part if they want, if they don't want to hear this next I'm part. Already, my, I'm like already tearing up because okay. I know what's going to, I mean, I can just, okay, go. So while driving, Roger hears sounds coming from the back of the truck. And it is a small little voice asking for his parents. Oh, um, so he pulls the truck over and he discovers Richard, age 12, and his dogs. Because there was like a camper shell on the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. And Richard was calling for his parents. Verna and Harold pull over and Roger told them of the, quote, problem. Verna is quoted as telling Roger that there's no sense in hurting the little boy because he couldn't identify them. Roger disagreed, saying that there could be no witnesses. Roger then tore a hole into the camper screen and fired into the back of the truck, (gasps) wounding Richard. Harold and Roger then drag his body into a field where they realize he's still alive. So they shoot him again. So he had been shot three times at this point. Dr. Fred Jordan said that the boy was probably still alive when they left his body in that field. Okay, so this this is kind of a weird part. The Lorenz's truck, abandoned truck, was found at Will Rogers Airport mm-hmm. with the dogs still alive inside. However, it is stated that Roger was seen with the truck in Stillwater. So they drove from Purcell all the way to Stillwater, mm-hmm. then turned around and came back to Oklahoma City to leave the truck. That makes no sense. I I didn't understand. I don't understand. In a weird twist, Agent Linville, that OSBI agent, Mm -hmm. he believed that Verna may have actually been the one to fire the fatal shots to both Melvin and Linda Lorenz. The angles of Melvin's wounds were consistent with him being under the hood of the truck. And Linda's attack was pointed at Verna, not Roger. However, the prosecution adopted Verna's version. Brewer went after Verna again, pointing out that she had lied repeatedly to police, thus trying to avoid her own convictions and the death penalty. But we'll get to her. How how awful that these people stopped to out of the kindness of their heart to help mm-hmm. who they a woman who they thought was in in need. Right. It's just it's it, one of those. And it's just like no good deed goes unpunished, right? It just. It makes you not want to help anybody exactly. because you can't trust them. And that's, I mean, you always want to be kind. But right. 
Well, in this day and it age. Just, you, it's like you just can't trust anybody. No. And it's just so... Uh, yeah. In this day and age, you certainly can't do that. It's just awful. Melvin's brother identified the guns the Staffords had stolen from the Lorenz truck because, of course, they had to steal something. Right. The Purcell pawn shop owner identified the gun stolen from his shop and used in the murders because they had stolen the gun in Purcell. Even though the serial numbers had been scratched off, it was unique in that it misfired after every fifth shot. This matched the five spent shell casings and one live shot found at Richard's body. Wow. The three witnesses from the Sirloin Stockade murders were again called. Michael Jones was called to to the stand saying that he he was actually shown the gun that had killed Loren's family by Roger himself. Ray Tackett, the Stillwater businessman, was also called. He's the one that had seen Roger in Stillwater. Brewer tried to attack Tackett saying that he was only in it for the money. Tackett calmly responded with not knowing that there had been a reward and further saying his sighting happened before the Sirloin Stockade murder. Which he reported to Payne County seeing the Lorenz truck prior to those murders even happening. Mm -hmm. Because there had been like an all points bulletin. People had known that this truck had been stolen, had been this murdered family's truck. Had anybody seen it? Well, he called in and said, I saw it. It was in Stillwater. Interesting. Before. So this brewer guy. (sighs) Roger, again, testifies. The narcissist beast (laughs) he legit thought that he could talk right he legit thought that he could talk himself out of this conviction and another death sentence because he was so good at it the first time around i'm glad he wasn't good at it (laughs) right again he denied any involvement and placed all blame on verna because he had caught her with another gentleman he claims he came home from work on june 21st to find verna gone he watched tv went to bed then went to work the next morning at 6 30 now get this roger had a witness or an alibi for this the staffords were living at the time in an emergency housing center in tulsa calvin mendelhall A social worker said that he remembered seeing Roger there because Roger requested that the TV be left on after the midnight curfew. Roger also had three officers and two employees testify that he was indeed at work on June 22nd. None, though, had actually laid eyes on him, but his time card was stamped for the day and they claimed his absence would have been noticed. However, the state was able to rebut this by having Ted Bollinger, who serviced the time clocks, show how easily the time clocks could have been manipulated. Buck Rudd, a supervisor at the emergency housing center, said that Mendenhall had never mentioned seeing Roger before this, and he was often known to tell untruths. Mm. Kenneth Thomas was again called. He was that jailhouse informant. He said that Roger told him he always killed the most dangerous person first. And he said it didn't make any difference if they were 2 or 82. They grow up to be just the same. Oh my gosh. He also told the court that Roger wasn't worried about a conviction because he had co-workers that would punch him in at work. I was going to say, I I bet someone punched him in. Oh, 100%. March 7th, after one hour and 24 minutes, the jury convicts Roger Dale Stafford of the Lorenz killings and sentences him to death. Roger would file numerous appeals in both the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. No appeals were successful in overturning his verdicts. Here's another kooky fact. 
he was viewed as the poster boy for appellate court reform. (laughs) (laughs) At least he got something good out of it. At this time, Verna now pleads guilty to two second-degree murder charges, one for 16-year-old Terry Horst and the other for Linda Lorenz. Verna was sentenced to two 10-year-to-life sentences. In 1984, on April 2nd, 15 hours before... Roger is to be executed for the Lorenz killings. Roger Dale Stafford wins a delay from the U.S. Supreme Court. It is said that Stafford had many stays of execution before it actually happened. Really? Yeah. In 1989, on August 7th, in another Oklahoma case, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that courts couldn't set indeterminate sentences. So this this was Verna. Verna could potentially be allowed to go free immediately. Oh! <gasps> Judge Richard Freeman was assigned her case. He correctly set aside her original sentence, but proceeded to conduct a hearing in which both parties would provide evidence. Verna played up her cooperation with the police. She even asked former District Attorney Coates to testify on her behalf. At the time, the current DA, Bob Macy, offered up the gruesome evidence, reiterating Verna's involvement. Linville and Detective Cook also testified, believing Verna was way more involved than she admitted. I love like that judges get to make comments. Uh And this is this this rings up there. One of those good ones. The judge tells Verna Stafford, there's one of the hottest corners in hell vacant with your name right above it. Wow. And sentences her to two consecutive life terms plus 999 years. Verna appealed. But the ruling was upheld. Wow. Now, it is important to know, Verna is still alive. She has repeatedly tried to parole out. Each Mm -hmm. request has been denied. I looked long and hard through the Pardon and Parole Board's docket site, but I couldn't find her next date of eligibility for parole. It seems like 2019 Mm -hmm. was her last attempt, Mm -hmm. possibly. For sure, she had one in 2014. And typically, I think they're allowed three years in between Um, she is currently or still continues to be housed in mabel bassett correctional center in mcleod she suffered or as of 2014 she did from neurological problems in her feet at the time she was in a wheelchair assuming she may still be wheelchair bound she remains passive and unemotional when speaking about her crimes she claims she participated because she feared roger he forced her to help by threatening her children and her life She said he told her about another murder, presumably the Jimmy Berry murder in Alabama from Mm -hmm. 1974. He also claims that he was associated with the mafia, which I highly doubt that. Mm. She also said she continued to receive those death threats from Roger while they were both in prison. But how? Because isn't there someone that reads prisoners' mail? I Yeah, I believe that so. comes in and goes out so i'm not quite sure how he could be threatening her well, but i don't know i'm gonna read from oklahoma's most notorious again um page 250 when asked if there was anything she would like people to know about the cases that has never come out despite all the trials and headlines Werner replied i'm not the meanest person that everybody thinks i am i mean i wish i would have had more of a backbone to have stood up to him you know i wish it never had happened but i think until people really realize the type of person he really was no one's going to understand me does that make sense 
It doesn't make sense. Say what she will, in the end, Verna's attempt to play victim is far more persuasive. She willingly participated in both of the vicious crimes. She never stepped forward on her own. She knew Roger Dale was a murderer before the Lorenz killings, and even after that bloody crime, she stayed with him and took part in the Sirloin Stockade murders. And she only helped the authorities after she had been caught and feared the death penalty herself. As for her unemotional appearance, it may well reflect her capacity for the cold-blooded killings of, of innocent people, just like Roger Dale Stafford himself. Right. I was going to say, I don't see how you can say, oh, I'm this this person. I was scared for my life going on and on, but have no emotion or remorse from what it sounds like. Exactly. For what happened, because I didn't hear anything about being sorry to exactly. the victim's families mm-hmm. of them doing that. Yeah. I mean... How remorse, remorseful are you? Right. None is what it sounds like. So here we come. 1995. May 30th. Prison officials officially notify Roger Dale Stafford that his execution date is 30 days away and urge him to make arrangements. July 1st. Stafford is executed after 15 and a half years on death row. Prior to death, Roger was said to have grown overweight and got remarried twice. He While was still in prison? A- yeah. He was still a narcissist and a big talker. Roger was said to still proclaim his innocence and spoke in tongues to his third wife while the lethal dose of drugs was being administered. Here's a kooky fact. Roger's last meal and snack. Oh. He had chocolate ice cream. Get this. A six foot long chili cheese dog. Six foot long chili cheese dog. Yeah. I thought that was a mess. Almost as tall as he was. (laughs) Um, Two chocolate milkshakes and some french fries. And here's another kooky fact. Uh, this is more of a sick fact, I think. And this is very popular, like widely known about this case. Two weeks after the execution, Arthur Linville and Assistant Attorney General Sandy Howard each received a $5 gift certificate in the mail to the Sirloin Stockade. This message is written on the back. Hey, you got away with it. I am murder and you helped do it. Roger Dale Stafford, number 103767. The gift certificate was traced to a sirloin stockade in El Reno and mailed from McAllister on July 3rd, 1995. And I wonder at this point if it was in his personal belongings and he had somehow instructed maybe his wife to mail it Mm -hmm. or if he had put it in the mail on the first and maybe the mail didn't go out every single day. Right. But, you know, I think I remember hearing that in the Erie, Oklahoma mm -hmm, episode. mm And you're right. It's just, it's just sick. It's yeah. just disgusting. And I think if anything, it just proves how guilty he mm-hmm. was yeah. and what a sicko he was. Yes, I agree. But that is the story of Roger Dale Stafford <sighs> and the Sirloin Stockade murders. Um, it's gory. It's it's a bad one. I think he ranks up there with the Ted Bundys of the world. It's heartbreaking, especially it for not only the victim's family, but mm-hmm. the children yes. that, they, um, that they had. Yes, yes. And even if you think about it, you know, Harold's kids, too, because mm-hmm. Harold and Mary had children. It's just heartbreaking. and It just makes you wonder what they did with the kids while they went and did this well, stuff. Well, that's why they had Mary. Because she was the oh, because- one that was supposed to just watch the kids. Oh, yeah, that's right. But yeah, that's it. Oh, man. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to There's, say. You know, I laugh because I'm uncomfortable because it's hard. It's one thing when you listen to podcasts 
and they're talking about other parts of the country like right. California or right. Florida or New York and you're like okay you know those are big giant states big giant cities mm-hmm. but no that stuff happens here in Oklahoma too it I mean let's be honest it happens everywhere BTK was just in Wichita right which is right across the border from Oklahoma right you know? So it happens everywhere. It's one of those things. And it happens in every country too. So it's just one of those defaults in human brains. I'd be interested to know if he had um, a brain injury. Nobody ever says anything about that. Um, Oh, like as a child? Yes. Because, you know, a lot of them had had brain injuries. But I definitely think his his growing up, his childhood probably played a big role part in why he now was did it say like growing up was he abused at all or was it do you think he was like neglected or because it sounds it didn't like say, his dad didn't work but his mom was the one who was it working. didn't say like you i i mean if i speculated i would say he was probably more neglected than he would have been abused uh-huh. so i mean it didn't really say that his dad was an alcoholic or anything so it's just that his dad it'd be interesting was unemployed so yeah but that's the story of, you know, well, Roger thanks Day. for ruining my night. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. So, Jess, tell everybody what we're doing next week. Uh, we really want to do listeners' tales. Yes, next week. yes, please. I please. I totally just butchered that. Listeners' tales. So, if you have any kind of stories, it doesn't matter if it's true crime, paranormal, some kind of dark history in your town. Please, please, please write in. We want to hear right. from you so that we can we read your want- story. We want to connect with our listeners. So if you have a listener tale for us, please, please, please email us at curiouscousinsok at gmail.com. And just in the subject line, put listener tale. And just so our family and friends know, if we don't get any, we're coming after you. So (laughs) here's your warning. Yep. Tip, you want to tell them where they can find us? Of course. We are on the social medias. You can find us on Facebook at Curious Cousins OK Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Curious Cousins OK. But remember, Cousins is spelled C-U-Z-N. And you can find us on Instagram at Curious Cousins OK. And of course, we're on all major podcast platforms, including Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google. And I think that's about it. Just tell them what to keep it. Keep it cookie and spooky. Bye. Bye.